0: Chapter 14 of Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A.J. Binney Collected Papers on Analytical Psychology by Carl Gustav Jung Translated by Constance Ellen Long 1867-1923 to Part 9 the dominance of the superpersonal unconscious. The task now lies before us of raising the unconscious data and their relations that have been hitherto understood upon the objective plane to the subjective plane. To this end, we must once more separate them from their objects, conceiving them as images related in a subjective way to function complexes in the patient's own unconscious. Raised to the subjective plane, Mrs. X is the person who showed the patient the way to do something that the patient herself feared while unconsciously desiring it. Mrs. X, therefore, represents that which the patient would like to become, and yet does not quite want to. In a certain sense, Mrs. X is a picture of the patient's future character. The fascinating artist cannot be raised to the subjective plane, because the unconscious artistic gift lying dormant in the patient has already been covered over by Mrs X. It would be quite right to say that the artist is the image of the masculine element in the patient, which not being consciously realized is still lying in the unconscious. In a certain sense, this is indeed true, the patient actually deluding herself as regards this matter. That is, she seems to herself to be particularly tender, sensitive and feminine, with nothing in the least masculine about her. She was indignantly amazed when I drew her attention to her masculine traits. But the reason why she is fascinated by something mysterious in the artist cannot be attributed to what is masculine in her. That seems to be completely unknown to her. And yet it must be hiding somewhere, for she has produced this feeling out of herself. Whenever a part of libido similar to this cannot be found, experience teaches us that it has always been projected. But into whom? is it still attached to the artist? He has long ago disappeared from her horizon and can hardly have taken the projection with him because it was firmly fixed in the patient's unconscious. A similar projection is always actually present. That is, there must somewhere be someone upon whom this amount of libido is actually projected. Otherwise, she would have felt it consciously. Thus, we once more reach the objective plane, for we cannot discover this missing projection in any other way. The patient does not know any man except myself who means anything at all to her, and as her doctor I mean a good deal to her. Therefore, she has probably projected this part upon me. It is true I had never noticed anything of the kind, but the exquisitely deceptive roles are never presented to the analyst on the surface, coming to light always only outside the hour of treatment. I therefore carefully inquire, Tell me, what do I seem like to you when you are not with me? Am I just the same, then? Reply. When I am with you, you are very pleasant and kind. But when I am alone, or have not seen you for rather a long time, then the picture I have in my mind of you changes in an extraordinary way. Sometimes you seem quite idealized, and then again different. She hesitates. I help by saying, yes, what am I like then? Reply. Sometimes quite dangerous, sinister, like an evil magician or demon. I do not know how I get hold of such ideas. You are not really a bit like that. So this part was attached to me as part of a transference. That is why it was lacking in her inventory. Therewith, we recognise a further important thing. I was confused with, identified with, the artist, and in her unconscious fantasy, she is Mrs X. I was easily able to prove this fact by means of material that had previously been brought to light, sexual fantasies. But I myself, then, am the obstacle, the crab, that is hindering her from getting across. The state of affairs would be critical if at this particular point we were to limit ourselves to the objective plane of interpretation. What would be the use of my explaining? But I am not this artist at all. I am not in the least weird as he is, nor am I like an evil magician. That would leave the patient quite unconvinced, because she would know as well as I do that the projection would continue to exist all the same and that it is really I who am hindering her further progress. It is at this point that many a treatment has come to a standstill, for there is no other way for the patient here of escaping from the embrace of the unconscious, but for the physician to raise himself to the subjective plane, where he is to be regarded as an image. But an image of what? This is where the greatest difficulty lies. The doctor will say, an image of something in the patient's unconscious. But the patient may object. What? Am I to suppose myself to be a man, a mysteriously fascinating one to boot, a wicked wizard and a demon? No, I cannot accept that. It is nonsense. I'd sooner believe that you are all that. She is really, so to speak, quite right. It is too preposterous to want to transfer such things to herself. She cannot permit herself to be made into a demon, any more than can the physician. Her eyes flash. A wicked expression appears upon her face. A glimmer of an unknown hate never seen before. Something snake-like seeming to creep into her. I am suddenly faced by the possibility of a fatal misunderstanding with her. What is it? Is it disappointed love? Is she offended? Does she feel depreciated? There seems to lurk something of the beast of prey. Something really demonic in her glance. Is she then, after all, a demon? Or am I myself the beast of prey? The demon. And this is a terrified victim sitting before me who is trying to defend herself with a brute force of despair against my wicked spells. But either idea must be nonsense, fantastical delusion. What have I come in contact with? What new string is vibrating? But it is only for a passing moment. The expression upon the patient's face becoming quiet again, she says, as if relieved. It is extraordinary. I feel as if you had touched the point which I could never get over in relation to my friend. It is a horrible feeling, something non human Wicked and cruel. I cannot describe how queer this feeling is. At such moments, it makes me hate and despise my friend, although I struggle against it with all my might and main. An explanatory light is thrown upon what has happened by this observation. I have now taken the friend's place. The friendship has been overcome. The ice of repression is broken. The patient has, without knowing it, entered upon a new phase of her existence. I know that now, upon me will fall everything painful and bad in the relation to the friend. So also will whatever was good in it, although in violent conflict with the mysterious unknown quantity X, about which the patient could never get clear. A new phase, therefore, of the transference supervenes, which, however, does not as yet make clearly apparent what the X that is projected upon me consists of. It is quite certain that the most troublesome misunderstandings threaten if the patient should stick at this stage of the transference. In that case, she will necessarily treat me as she treated her friend. That is, the ex will continually be somewhere in the air giving rise to misunderstandings. The end would probably be that she would see the evil demon in me, because she is quite unable to accept the fact that she is herself the demon. All insoluble conflicts are brought about in this way, and an insoluble conflict signifies a standstill in life. Another possibility, is that the patient should disregard the obscure point by applying her old preventative against this new difficulty. That is, she would repress it again, instead of keeping it conscious, which is the necessary and obvious demand of the whole method. Nothing is gained by such repression. On the contrary, the X threatens more from the unconscious where it is considerably more unpleasant. Whenever such an unacceptable image emerges, one must decide whether at bottom it is destined to represent a human quality or not. Magician and demon may represent qualities that are described in this particular fashion, in order that they may speedily be recognized as not human, but mythological qualities. Magician and demon, being mythological figures, aptly express the unknown, non-human feelings which had surprised the patient. These attributes are not applicable to a human personality, being, as a rule, judgments of character intuitively and not critically approved, which are projected upon our fellow beings, inevitably doing serious injury to human relations. Such attributes always indicate that contents of the superpersonal or absolute unconscious are being projected. Neither demons nor wicked magicians are reminiscences of personal experiences, although everyone has of course at some time or other heard or read of them. Although one has heard of a rattlesnake, it would hardly be appropriate to describe a lizard or a blind worm as a rattlesnake simply because one was startled by their rustling. Similarly, one would hardly term a fellow being a demon, unless some kind of demonical influence were closely associated with him. If, however, the demonical influence were really part of his personal character, it would show itself everywhere, and then this human being would be a demon, a kind of werewolf. But such an ascription is mythology. In other words, it is from the collective and not from the individual psyche. Inasmuch as through our unconscious we have a share in the historical collective psyche, we naturally dwell unconsciously in a world of werewolves, demons, magicians, etc. These being things which have always affected men most profoundly. We have just as much a part in gods and devils, saviors and criminals. But it would be absurd to want to ascribe to one's personal self the possibilities that are potentially existing in the human unconscious. It is therefore essential to make as clear a distinction as possible between the personal and the impersonal assets of our psyche. This is by no means intended to nullify the occasional great effects due to the existence of the contents of the absolute unconscious. But these contents of the collective psyche should be differentiated from those belonging to the individual psyche. For simple-minded people, of course, these things were never separated. The projection of gods, demons, etc., not having been understood as a psychological function, was simply accounted concretistical realities. Their projectional character was never perceived. It was only with the advent of the epoch of skepticism that it was realized that the gods did not really exist except as projections. With that, the matter was set at rest. But the psychological function corresponding to it was by no means set at rest. For it lapsed into the unconscious and began to poison men with a surplus of libido that had hitherto been invested in the cult of idols or gods. Obviously, the depreciation and repression of such a powerful function as that of religion has serious consequences for the psychology of the individual. The reflux of this libido strengthens the unconscious prodigiously, so that it begins to exercise a powerful compulsory influence upon consciousness and its archaic collective contents. One period of scepticism came to a close with the horrors of the French Revolution. At the present time, we are again experiencing an ebullition of the unconscious destructive powers of the collective psyche. The result is an unparalleled general slaughter. That is just what the unconscious was tending towards. This tendency had previously been inordinately strengthened by the rationalism of modern life, which by depreciating everything irrational, caused the function of irrationalism to sink into the unconscious but the function once in the unconscious will from thence work unceasing havoc, like an incurable disease whose center cannot be eradicated. For then the individual and the nation alike are compelled to live irrationally, and even to apply their highest idealism and their best wit to make this madness of irrationalism as complete as possible. We see examples of this on a small scale in our patient. She turned from a possibility of life that seemed to her irrational, Mrs. X, in order to live it in a pathological form, to her own loss. And with an unsuitable object. There is indeed no possible alternative but to acknowledge irrationalism as a psychological function that is necessary and always existent. Its results are not to be taken as concrete realities that would involve repression, but as psychological realities. They are realities because they are effective things, that is, they are actualities. The collective unconscious is the sediment of all the experience of all the universe of all time and is also an image of the universe that has been in process of formation for untold ages. In the course of time, certain features have become prominent in this image, the so-called dominants. These dominants are the ruling powers, the gods. That is, the representations resulting from dominating laws and principles, from average regularities in the issue of the images that the brain has received as a consequence of secular processes. Insofar as the images formed in the brain are relatively faithful portrayals of psychic happenings, they will correspond to their dominance. That is, their general characteristic features, made prominent by the accumulation of similar experiences, will correspond to certain physical fundamental facts that are also universal. Hence, it is possible to transfer unconscious images to physical events direct as intuitive ideas. E.g. Ether. The primeval breath, or soul substance, appears in man's conceptions the whole world over. So too, energy, the magic force, which is equally widespread. On account of their connection with physical things, the dominants usually make their appearance as projections, appearing, indeed, if the projections are unconscious, in the persons of the immediate environment, as a rule, in the form of abnormal under- or over-valuations, which excite misunderstandings conflict, infatuations, and various kinds of folly. People say, he makes a god of so-and-so, or, so-and-so is X's bete noir They also give rise to the formation of modern myths, that is, fantastic rumours, suspicions, and prejudices. The dominance of the collective unconscious are therefore extremely important things of significant effect, to which great attention should be paid. They must not be repressed, but must be given most careful consideration. They usually appear as projections, and since projections are only attach where there is some external stimulus, it is very difficult to appraise them aright, on account of the relation of the unconscious images with the object. If someone projects the dominant of devil into a fellow being, this occurs because this other person has something in him that makes the attachment of the devil dominant possible. But That is by no means to say that this person is therefore, so to speak, a devil. On the contrary, he may be a particularly good fellow, but being antipathetic to the one who projects, a devilish effect is brought about between the two. This does not mean that the one who projects is a devil, although he must recognise that he too, just as much, has something devilish in him, and has been gulled by it, inasmuch as he projected it. But that does not make him a devil. Indeed, he may be just as decent a man as the other. In such a case, the appearance of the devil-dominant means the two persons are incompatible, for the moment and for the near future. Wherefore, the unconscious splits them asunder and holds them apart from each other. One of the dominants that is almost always met in the analysis of projections of collective unconscious contents is the magical demon. It is of preponderating sinister effect. The Golem, by Meyerink is a good example of this also the Tibetan wizard in Myronik's Flendermausen, who lets the world war loose by magic. Obviously Myronik formed this image independently and freely out of his unconscious, by giving word and picture to a feeling similar to the one that my patient had projected upon me. The dominant of magic also appears in Zarathustra, while in Faust, it is, so to say, the hero himself. The picture of this demon is the lowest and most elementary concept of God, it is the dominant of the primitive tribal magic man, or a singly gifted personality endowed with magic power. This figure very frequently makes an appearance in my patients unconscious as a dark-skinned being of Mongolian type. An important step forward has been taken by the recognition of the dominance of the absolute unconscious. The magical or demonic effect of the fellow being is made to disappear by the feeling being realized as a definite projection of the absolute unconscious. On the other hand, a completely new and unsuspected task now lies before us. Namely, the question in what way the ego should come to terms with this psychological non-ego. Should one rest satisfied with having verified the effective existence of unconscious dominance, leaving the matter to take care of itself? To leave it at this point would be the means of creating a permanent state of dissociation in the subject, a conflict between the individual psyche and the collective psyche, Upon the one side, we should have the differentiated modern ego, whilst upon the other a kind of uncivilised negro, representative of a thoroughly primitive state. That would mean that we should have what really does exist, a crust of civilization over a dark-skinned brute. The cleavage would be distinct and demonstrable before our very eyes. But such a disassociation requires immediate synthesis and cultivation of what is undeveloped. There must be a union of these two aspects. Before entering upon this new question, let us first return to the dream from which we started. The discussion has given us a broader understanding of the dream, and especially of an essential part of it, namely, the fear. This fear is a demonic fear of the dominance of the collective unconscious. We saw that the patient identifies herself with Mrs. X, expressing thereby that she also has some relation to the mysterious artist. It was apparent also that she identified the physician Myself, with the artist, and further, that when taken upon the subjective plane, the image of the wizard dominance of the collective unconscious represented me. All this is covered in the dream by the symbol of the crab which walks backwards. The crab stands for the living content of the unconscious that can by no means be exhausted or rendered inoperative by analysis on the objective plane. But what we were able to do was to detach the mythological or collective psychological contents from the objects of consciousness, and to consolidate them as psychological realities outside the individual psyche. So long as the absolute unconscious and the individual psyche are coupled together without differentiation, no progress can be made, or, as the dream expresses it, no boundary be crossed. If the dreamer does nevertheless prepare to cross the boundary, the unconscious that was hitherto unnoticed becomes animated, seizing her and dragging her down. The dream and its material characterize the absolute unconscious, on the one side as a lower animal living hidden in the depths of the water, and on the other side as a dangerous disease that can only be cured by a timely operation. To what extent this characterization is appropriate has already been seen. As was pointed out, the animal's symbol specially refers to what is extra-human, that is, super-personal, for the contents of the absolute unconscious are not merely the residue of archaic human functions, but also the residue of functions of the animal ancestry of mankind, whose duration of life was indeed vastly greater than the relatively brief epoch of specifically human existence. If such residues are active, they are apt, as nothing else is, not merely to arrest the progress of development, but also to divert the libido into regressive channels, until the quantity which the Absolute Unconscious has activated has been absorbed. The energy becomes profitable again after it has been consciously contrasted with the Absolute Unconscious, a process which enables it to be converted into a valuable source from which to draw. This transference of energy was established by religions in a concretistic manner through cultural communication with the gods, the dominance of the Absolute Unconscious. But these modes and customs are too much at variance with our intellect and our moral sense for us to be able to declare this solution of the problem as still binding or even possible. If, on the other hand, we apprehend the images of the unconscious as collective unconscious dominance, therefore as collective psychological phenomena or functions, this hypothesis is in no way opposed to our intellect and conscience. This solution is rationally acceptable, We have thus gained the possibility of coming to terms with the activated residues of our ancestral history. This mode of settlement makes it possible to traverse the boundary line hitherto limiting us and is therefore appropriately termed the transcendental function, which is synonymous with progressive development to a new attitude. In the dream, this development is indicated by the other side of the stream. The similarity to hero myths is striking. The typical combat of the hero with the monster the unconscious content, frequently takes place on the banks of some water, sometimes at a ford. This circumstance is prominent in legends of Red Indians, as, for example, in Longfellow's Hiawatha. In the decisive battle, the hero is swallowed by a monster, CF Story of Jonah, as Robinius has shown by means of extensive material. But inside the monster, the hero begins to come to terms with the beast in his own way, whilst the creature swims with him towards the sunrise he cuts off a valuable piece of the viscera, e.g., the heart, by which the monster lived. That is, the valuable energy by which the unconscious was activated. Through this deed he kills the monster, who then drifts to land, where the hero, born anew through the transcendental function, the night journey under the sea of Frobenius, steps forth, often in company with all those beings whom the monster had previously swallowed. This enables the normal state to be restored, as the unconscious, having been robbed of its energy, no longer occupies a preponderating position. In this way, the myth, which is the dream of a people, graphically describes the problem with which our patient is concerned. The problem of how to come to terms with the absolute unconscious is a question apart. I must content myself here with a general survey of the new theory of the unconscious up to the transcendental function, leaving the presentation of the transcendental function itself to a later work. End of The Dominance of the Superpersonal Unconscious Recording by A.J. Binney